Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Clinical Psychedelics Podcast, where we discuss the clinical use and research of entheogens. I'm Jean, your host, and in this episode, I'm joined by cultural anthropologist Carol Konzelman, who is the Senior Instructor of the Global Studies and International Affairs Program at CU Boulder, and also the Faculty Advisor for the CU Chapter of Students for Sensible Drug Policy and the Psychedelic Club Boulder. And also with us is Chad Tanous, the Chapter President of the SSDP and the Co-President of the Psychedelic Club at CU. In this dynamic conversation, we discuss global drug policy through an anthropology lens, Western cultural revolution, who the hell is Harry Anslinger, and their upcoming event on April 17th, the Cannabis and Psychedelic Symposium. Let's dive right in as Carol tells us about the history and evolution of their event. So in 2014, I created a course a full semester course on the anthropology of drugs and drug policy. And this was a significant year. I had been teaching um, on issues related to the U.S. war on drugs in all of my other courses, like a little unit, because I've been working in Bolivia since 1997, studying the impacts of the U.S. war on drugs and how coca farmers, coca leaf farmers, organized democratically to resist these kinds of, that kind of interference and to organize their own kind of model of development and, and vision of the future. And so it was always part of my courses on globalization and democracy and international affairs and the Andes and things like that. And I finally decided I had enough material for a whole semester on a whole range of different substances. And this also overlapped then in 2014 with the year that cannabis that cannabis was officially available in dispensaries in the legal market. So Colorado had passed the amendment 64 in 2012, but it took of course a year to figure out the regulations and such. So this would overlap with the rollout and generally speaking, young people didn't know very much about cannabis. I mean, we were still in the dark ages of just say no and the DARE programs. And so especially as students came to see you from around the country, I've asked them over the years, their, their friends are always like, oh, you're going to Colorado, have a good time, you know, for college. And so they really felt like, I don't want this to undermine the legitimacy of my studies in Colorado. And so by creating this course, it treats these subjects as legitimate topics for scholarly debate and academic research and democratic engagement as well with people being educated to influence policies and um, you know, educate their peers, et cetera. And so I planned the course specifically for spring so it would overlap with 420, April 20th, which had historically been a day of pretty much how, what I would define as um, kind of a disruptive event, the smoke out on the main quad. Well, it had moved from a couple of different locations as CUPD and the CU administration tried to get the, the event to end and including with some pretty draconian then crackdown measures to um, outlaw 
the event and close down campus for the day and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on police presence and arrests and an alternative concert trying to lure people away, which was a complete flop. I mean, it's a long story, but the, I was in graduate school through all of those years. And as I'm starting to study all this myself, I'm thinking, this is such a wasted opportunity. I mean, here's up to 12,000 people on campus for the day. Everyone obviously cares about cannabis, but all they're doing is just smoking a bowl at 420 and sort of cheering and running around. And there was no education. There's no organizing. There's no explanation about, well, why do we have prohibition? And what is cannabis? What's it for? You know, is what's it been used for? And how many people are rotting in jail for doing exactly what you guys are doing on campus, you know, smoking a joint, they're rotting in jail for years just for possession, just for having a joint in their pocket. So all of that was desperately missing. And then when cannabis was legalized, it really, I really just wanted to take the opportunity to up our game and, and try to provide a day of, of public education, modeling what it looks like to treat this topic, um, like I said, as a legitimate subject for academic inquiry and discussion from a holistic perspective, all different angles. And I invited the chancellor because they were going to close down the campus again in 2014 for the third year in a row. I mean, they did, they had announced they were closing campus again. And so I asked the chancellor to come and speak to my class about why, you know, what were the policies? What's, what was the agenda of the university? And so that he could speak directly to students and students could hear him and sort of uh, break down this kind of demonization on both sides. And when, when he said yes, I said, all right, I wanna make this a bigger event. I was gonna do some kind of a teach-in, but I thought it was just gonna be like for the dorm or something. And when the chancellor said yes, I said, all right, I need to make this really open to the whole campus and then I, so I pulled together a couple of other people and did an evening event and had four sessions and had my students introduce different topics and you know new business owners with the first legal uh, license and an herbalist. Anyway, it's a long story, but it, it's been a really interesting evolution. And then the next year, the Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter asked me to be their faculty advisor because they had had a similar idea and we've been collaborating then ever since and this is our first year we're going to be remote so we're really excited actually. I love that that's so um, interesting to hear how all of that's evolved um, so you have had lots of different kind of speakers in the past and this year um, tell me about the, the speakers in the um, little sessions that you'll be having? Well, um, we always have a series of keynote speakers and then a series of panels. Our peak, we had five 
keynote speakers and eight panels and concurrent rooms all through the law school. And it was sort of a huge undertaking. And we've kind of scaled it back. So there's just one event so everyone can stay together. And then this year we have scaled back the schedule because it's on a Saturday for the first time and it's remote, but we've made each session a little bit longer. And so we're really trying to encourage more engagement, more question and answer period for people who are going to be participating, hopefully from around the country, other college campuses. Ultimately, I hope that this inspires other campuses to design their own symposia around these issues or relevant issues. Chad, do you wanna talk about our speakers? Yeah, so we have, um, I guess the main speaker would be Dennis McKenna. Um, and he's going to be going last. Also, another speaker we have is actually going to be my uncle, uh, Alexandre Tanous, and he's a, a sound music therapist and he works with uh, Dennis. And they're gonna be doing like a final Q&A at the end. Um, and that should be really interesting. I'm excited for that. Um, we're also having uh, Marty Otanez from CU Denver come in as a keynote. <clears throat> and then also Ingrid Walker from University of Tacoma, Washington, I believe it is. University of Washington, Tacoma. Tacoma. Yeah, um, and then uh, for our panels, we're just gonna be having two panels. Um, one is a user and activism panel. The other one is a uh, racial justice and social justice panel. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. And like Carol said, the benefit of, you know, doing a virtual event this year is that we can have this sort of wide, and I, I would say impressive uh, panel of, of speakers across the board. Um, you know, without necessarily having to have them fly in, you know, they can just tune in from home and everybody can interact with them. So basically the kind of, the idea, like starting this podcast was really just to kind of like bridging the gap between the, the not, not only the clinical community, but the research community um, and the higher ed community and the um, ceremonial use of entheogens, the traditional use of these substances. Um, it's a very wide gap that needs filled right now. So we've been kind of working to bridge that gap. So I guess my question for you would be, how can we bridge that gap? What can we do to kind of um, start to connect the indigenous communities and the ceremonial uses of the entheogens with more of the um, pertaining to you with the scholarly community? Well, the original title that I gave this event was a teach-in. And I used that term very specifically because it relates to the original effort in the 1960s and 70s when the first teach-ins were organized at University of Michigan and University of California, Berkeley, and elsewhere to bring together students and faculty and the public to have a, a public debate on an issue of common concern that our elected officials are not adequately addressing. So obviously the issue back then was the Vietnam War. And Marshall Sollins and other anthropologists have written about this event and the value of bringing people together, not only as an educational experience and a pedagogical strategy, but also as um, a way to educate the public 
on these topics that are really important that have wide ranging impacts in our society, but most people know very little about, and they don't know why they don't know about it. I mean, prohibition, drug prohibition, doesn't just try to demonize and criminalize production, sale, and use. It also shuts down academic research. Funding, publishing, um, you are, you know, marginalized in your field for, for we lost 50 years of, of research. I mean, obviously people are still utilizing these substances and there are other countries where some of this research is happening, but you know, in the US as sort of this leader, the hegemonic power in, in global politics and funding and the whole banking system and all of this is, you know, really related to a deep, deep tradition of racism in the policies that the US designs and then imposes around the world. And again, we don't, people just, we've had prohibition for so long, beginning in the late 1800s. And of course the war on drugs, which was just a increased militarization um, of these same policies beginning in 1971 and accelerating in the, in the 80s and continuing until this day. And people just think, especially young people, they just think, well, drugs are illegal, so they must be bad. And so I guess people who do them or sell them or, um, you know, produce them are, they're not just bad or immoral, they're criminals. And we just assume that that's normal and nobody knows why we have these policies, where they came from. So that's definitely, you know, part of what I teach in my class. That's the whole premise for the class is this deep historical perspective, but also the deep cultural perspective. What are these substances? Let's just start there, you know, looking at all, all these different plant medicines, and ancient remedies, both for medicines, healing, ceremony, nutrition, um, you know, rural economy, political power. There are all of these, the, these multiple dimensions of value in these substances. And there are also the substances I'm talking about, everything from cannabis and coca leaf to ayahuasca and peyote and psilocybin that and other substances that have been demonized really because they are associated with indigenous cultures <clears throat> and culture groups that aren't really considered <clears throat> legitimate in the quote modern world, you know, that they represent a threat culturally or maybe economically, socially, either through, for example, um, you know, Chinese workers immigrating into the United States and working in the Transcontinental Railroad and the gold rush in California, and they were considered a threat to mainstream white society, that they were taking our jobs, right? This, that language goes back a long ways, right? We don't even know that kind of language around immigration. So, um, or the great migration of African-Americans after slavery moving north into the industrialized centers, city centers, 
That was the largest refugee crisis we've ever had in the US. And they were also considered immigrants, illegitimate, not true Americans when they arrived in the North. And so by targeting these groups, associating them with certain substances that we could demonize the substance and then you can demonize the people and then you can um, disrupt the communities and um, you know and and demonize these these groups of people for political gain so that continues and this this struggle now of indigenous groups around the world trying to um, really argue for a shift in our global drug prohibition system. Because the US took its prohibition model and made it global in the 1961 single convention on narcotic drugs at the United Nations. So, um, and it's been proven for many, many years that it's, it's, it's ineffective. But the question is, of course, as Gabor Mate says, you know, the drug war is actually not really a failure. Uh, it's working exactly as designed. <laughs> it's just a different set of priorities than actual public safety and, you know, um, cultural relativism. I think a lot of times, especially now, as a lot of these substances are really being catapulted into the mainstream, a piece of the conversation that's often missing is um, is the indigenous communities and the um, importance of their traditions around these substances that um, I will say that they've been protecting for all this time that they it's been prohibited. Um, so just from your perspective, like through the lens of, you know, the social environmental justice, um, you know, as we're looking towards bringing these substances in the mainstream, how do we provide equity and inclusion? How do we honor the importance of that ceremonial tradition? How do we start to, as states all over the country are starting to roll out these new proposals and policy initiatives, what can we include in that language to um, sustain our natural resources, protect the environment, and also like pay homage and give back to these indigenous communities? Mm -hmm. I think that's missing from a lot of the conversation. Well, that's why I think anthropology is an especially good lens to use because it teaches people to recognize ethnocentrism. When people are treating their own cultural background as the norm and other cultural traditions as deviant, and then we impose our own values onto others, which of course is reflective of power inequities that have existed since colonial times. I mean, what we're really talking about is a neo-colonial system. You know, there's no reason that something as addictive and deadly as alcohol and tobacco, nicotine should be available widely throughout the world, exported, hundreds of billions of dollars made in profit and hundreds of thousands of people die every year from these substances. And yet something like cannabis and psilocybin that you know, their toxicity is so low that you virtually can't overdose. Um, 
they they are not addictive substances. They have incredible medicinal value. So I think the, the point here is that when you have an ethnocentric kind of political system, cultural system, as you do in any colonial kind of system, which the United States is um, founded upon colonialism, colonialist mindset and values, um, we have a very um, shallow or unidimensional view of these substances where, where we interpret them according to our own values when we really need to recognize the multiple layers of value that these substances have. And by, um, you know, <laughs> this would be my hope in many different topics, including gun control, the war on drugs, uh, the climate emergency, a lot of different subjects is that we should learn how to humble ourselves and learn from other countries, other uh, cultures about, you know, what do these substances mean and how are they used and allowing, you know, people who have been marginalized, who has, have the least power in the global system and yet suffer the greatest level of violence and injustice around a lot of these different kinds of policies, especially when you're looking at, you know, spraying glyphosate all over the country of Colombia and things like that, um, you know, that, that we really set aside our biases finally and learn from other, other cultures and other countries because they are strategizing. There are a lot of reform efforts going on around the world that are very interesting to study. And, and I don't think we need to go to now, okay, now here's the new normal, everyone has to do it like this. It should be a democratic experiment to see what's really effective, um, but based on reliable information, not this ethnocentric colonialist mindset. I mean, Chad, I would ask you the, that same question or bounce that to you because like in working with students and educating your peers, What's the language that you guys are using around this? What are the kinds of conversations you guys are having? Yeah, um, obviously we're having a lot of conversations about prohibition. I think that this generation, like the generation that's in college now is really interested in analyzing prohibition because you know, we did grow up with the D.A.R.E. program in the 2000s. Some of us are old enough to remember Just Say No. Um, so we really got to see how it's saturated into our culture and how, you know, deeply set it is. Um, but one thing that's really interesting that came up for me recently, um, I was actually helping to host a, uh, a drug policy sort of writing workshop with uh, somebody else who runs another chapter of my club. And we were, uh, I think psilocybin uh, buttons or peyote buttons came up as a uh, talking point. And that's a really interesting um, uh, topic regarding like environmentalism and conservation because that plant is actually endangered. So, uh, you know, it's, it's understanding these substances from just a holistic stance, understanding their chemical stance, understanding their sociological and cultural, you know, place, place and traditions. Um, that it's not always necessarily about making things available right now, you know, so they can be produced and consumed. It's also about like just understanding what we need to do to respect these substances right now. So that's not it's not always legalization and decriminalization up front. 
Um, but what I always try to stress, which is uh, like one of my favorite points about prohibition is that we can go backward. You know, we can go back to uh, more prohibition. I think a lot of people have this concept that progress is like linear. And I always try to remember uh, to remind all of my club members that it's not linear. We can drop the ball and we can go back. So this is something very important that we're doing right now, um, especially when it's in this sort of like liminal state, um, because we're setting the groundwork for what's potentially going to be a huge change to our society and the way our society functions. Prohibition is like one of my favorite things to look at in terms of especially pop culture, because I mean, you just go, go back to all of the media from like the 90s and 2000s. I mean, it is there. You know, it was so deeply in all of the uh, media that we were consuming that I think we don't even notice. So it's, it's really interesting for me to analyze that personally. My, my head is spinning. I really love what you said, that, that the idea is you know, we're having all these conversations now and it's, it's really so focused on access. The conversation is completely focused on access. How do we get this, these substances in the hands of as many people as possible right now? Um, and again, I think a, a key piece, point that's missing is exactly to your point of, um, you know, let's start by understanding the chemical components of these substances and how they work and how they interact with our bodies and how, you know, the human relationship with these substances so that we can start to understand, um, you know, ways to replicate that experience with respect to protecting the endangered substances themselves. Um, you know, bringing up peyote buttons is a great example because we have options. Um, so yes, I, I love that point about as we're talking about access, let's really um, also remind ourselves the importance of just understanding these substances and where they come from and paying respect to that. Um, another substance in that category is bufo, is the, the bufo toad that um, is a really sought after experience for a lot of people in this realm, um, but there's a lot of different implications to how the bufo is processed and you know the, the treatment of these animals that are also endangered. I wanted to make a quick correction. I accidentally said um, psilocybin buttons earlier. It's, it's mescaline buttons, excuse me. Yes. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, something I think about a lot, um, is just the sustainability of the, of the natural substances like we're talking about, but also um, the inclusion of these communities in this emerging space, right? We're, we're, watching, we're watching a whole industry, a whole brand new thing just kind of emerge surrounding psychedelic substances. And also we are still like, cannabis has become this, this billion dollar industry already and we are still in the toddler stages of watching this emerge. Um, so, and this question goes to you, Chad, as, um, you know, engaging with students and being kind of like in that um, community with the Psychedelic Club and SSDP, um, what are the conversations that are happening around inclusion of indigenous communities and also around black communities as people are talking about policy and prohibition and what's next? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, looking at like what's happening in psychedelic communities right now, there's definitely um, something going on where I think, I think it's good. I think the communities are trying to address uh, some very white centric 
things happening in the communities, especially surrounding leadership um, and just who's in power, who's controlling things. A lot of these organizations that we work with are great, but a lot of the time they are led by mostly like white men. And, you know, it's not a crime to be a white man. I'm, I'm also a white man, but there needs to be some like reckoning in terms of like just what the, the, the makeup looks like. Um, but also in terms of like perspective, um, there, there is this vein of like, I call it mystification that happens in, in psychedelic communities where people tend to cover things up with this like blanket of, um, you know, we're all human, we're all one inside. And it, it's, it's I, I, I would love to say that it's brought up as a genuine point, but often it's brought up to um, quiet the uh, expressed suffering of a minority who's really trying to integrate the discrimination that they faced over their life with, you know, the psychedelic insights that they have with the fact that we are all human. Um, so I, I would just be mindful to, you know, to everybody just that that is something that we need to be mindful of um, is not sort of going into that mystification spot and sort of trying to blanket things over with this sort of, um, you know, everything's nice and make it magical um, because that is actually a sort of very white centric thing that I feel like is often happening. And it usually comes from a position of being in the center or expecting uh, people to accommodate you being in the center or accommodate your perspective being in the center. Um, so that, that I would say is really the most uh, interesting thing that's happening right now. And I would, I would definitely refer anybody who's, you know, more interested in learning more about that to any of uh, Shakruna Institute's videos because some of the uh, webinars and, you know, talks that they've been having are just great um, on that topic. So yeah, that, that's, that's for me what comes up when I, when I think about diversity in these communities. And it reflects in the, it, you know, it, it will reflect in, in the um, policy work that activists do. You know, it will trickle down to that. But I think it's just addressing the way that we're all interacting with each other in these spaces right now, because it's going to ripple out to the greater society. Caroline, I'll ask you this question, just in general, what, like, from your perspective, what do you see as the future of psychedelics and mm -hmm. cannabis and entheogenic substances in general? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, okay, it's my hope that we would learn how to apply even a basic analytical process to the policies that we have. I think that's the easiest way to reach people in power to sort of show them. And this is what I you know, designed for my classes where you need to be able to define the issue correctly, whatever you're trying to address. And for too long, the problem has been defined as the, the drugs themselves are bad and need to be eliminated and these sort of intended outcomes of a drug-free world, a drug-free America, and then the methods we use being primarily methods of punishment, methods of, um, you know, gathering intelligence and heavy policing and surveillance and incarceration, um, mandatory minimum sentences, things like that. And, you know, now that there's this, the, the opportunities have cracked open again for research 
around these different substances, that that can start to filter into our political conversations. And, you know, to be able to eliminate the threat of punishment, the threat of incarceration, the threat of losing your license if you're a scientist, um, really needs to be driven by this kind of, of scholarship. And again, this kind of public education opportunities, which podcasts like yours are an important part of, and just, just shifting the conversation and shifting the, the expectations that people have that actually, you know, drugs are not good or bad. It's the relationships with these substances that we have. Even that word drug, you know, has a negative connotation. Andrew Weil, of course, his famous book From Chocolate to Morphine lays out the approach that I just think is the most rational, which is um, all drugs are dangerous, except drugs are here to stay. And they've always been part of human society. We have evolved together with them. Some people go so far as to say that plants like plants and fungi, like, like psilocybin, like coca leaf, like cannabis, are our teacher plants that they will, uh, you know, help to facilitate the shift in consciousness. I mean, I totally agree with what Chad is saying. I mean, it's so easy for us in the West. We just think we want the quick fix. We just, oh, we figured it out now. You know, everything's, now we're all, all one and in tune. So I, I don't mean it like that, but just that, um, you know, shifting this kind of conversation and, um, I think that that will be mutually constituting if we have this kind of research, we have events like this to promote safe, public safety, personal safety. Um, what Andrew Weil, how he frames it is really, you have to be aware of the set and the setting and you have to be aware of what your relationship is with <clears throat> any substance, whether it's alcohol or sugar or technology or even exercise or or cocaine or you know whatever it is some people in fact the majority of people can use responsibly and safe and safely and there is a small percentage of people who are not able to cultivate a healthy relationship with with a substance or multiple substances and that's where we really need to target those efforts um, <clears throat> The, so Ingrid Walker, who is the professor at University of Washington, Tacoma, she has a book called High, A Nation of Drug Users, or Drugs in a Nation of Users. I think that's the subtitle. And she makes the argument that we're all drug users and that the majority don't have a problem. They're able to use it responsibly. And then we have Carl Hart's new book called Drug Use for Grownups which is, you know, based on his decades of research at Columbia, he is one of the most respected clinical researchers on the use of these substances. And he says, you know, we need to shift this entire narrative. There's even the, the question, the term of harm reduction that I think those of us in SSDP 
those of us who are involved in the Drug Policy Alliance, the every other, the biannual International Drug Policy Reform Conference, we really have over the past several years settled on this idea, this paradigm of harm reduction, that not only do we have to address the harms that drugs can have, which our policies haven't, that, that still exists, people who do suffer from addiction and the overdose crisis, but now we have all the harms of the drug war itself that need to be addressed. So we have this dual meaning of harm reduction, but the narrative that has been really gaining traction now in the public sphere facilitated, accelerated by books like Carl Hart's is shifting to say even that term harm reduction has at the center the assumption that drugs are harmful. And so, okay, maybe we wanna, you know, protect people's liberty by decriminalizing use or maybe even legalizing use if we can show that, okay, yes, there are some medical applications, you know, legitimate medical applications. But even that, um, it's really, really interesting. This conversation is happening so fast. There are so many, I mean, even 20 years ago when I started in this, 25 years ago almost, studying these topics slowly, figuring out what was going on, you know, hardly anyone was having these conversations. And so maybe, you know, part of it is, of course, social media and stuff, but it's really, really exciting to see this shift. So I guess, you know, generally speaking, I think that it's, you know, it's going in the right direction for sure. But with the caveat that again, that doesn't mean it's just a free for all for privileged people to be able to, oh, now, you know, I can, should just have access to whatever I want. I'm gonna fly to the Amazon and meet the shaman and, you know, we have to be so careful about not appropriating these kinds of medicines because I think if there's one lesson that we, that I've learned from studying these issues is that the cultural context is of primary importance. And the, that is where safety and healthy relationships and medical benefits and psychological benefits where that really lies. And that when we, you know, when we remove these substances from those kinds of cultural contexts, that's where abuse can happen. That's where, you know, exploitation can happen if you enter it into a capitalist system, which is the other problem that we're seeing with cannabis already is outside investors, wealthy people from states that still have cannabis prohibition are investing in Colorado and other places. And so there are, again, there are other models for that. The Colorado model, a lot of places have specifically passed laws to legalize cannabis, but not in the way that Colorado did. They don't want it to become a big capitalist free-for-all. So in Uruguay, the government took over the production and sale of cannabis because they wanted to remove the power of the drug cartels and their profit motive. So they dropped the price of per kilo, I'm not gonna get the numbers right, but something like from $200 to $2. And, you know, they don't want 
stores on every corner. Same with Washington, D.C. They legalized it, but you can only grow it yourself and you can't sell it. You can give it away. You can trade it for something with, with people you know, but you can't sell it. So there are lots of different models. And, and again, this is as San Ho Tree says, he's a research fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and the director of the Drug uh, Reform Project. But he says um, that this is a, we're seeing, we're in the midst of a democratic experiment. So all 50 states and other countries that are utilizing the democratic process to implement reform, and to learn from these new policies. And that's why I was saying the analytical process. We can subject this to a very basic analytical process to see what's being effective and what is not. And I love that you touched on the term harm reduction. I, uh, I loved Drug Use for Grownups. It was a great book. I, uh, because it was just so straightforward, matter of fact, like we have to shift our perspective on this and this is what we need to be looking at. Um, and he talks about the terms in place of harm reduction, um, risk reduction and benefit enhancement. And I love that. I've been speaking to people um, about that over and over again, just like you mentioned it, shifts that negative connotation that the substances themselves are harmful. Um, it's, our relationship with the substances that can become harmful when we lack other tools to manage those kind of relationships, which often translates into our in interpersonal relationships and our environment, et cetera. And the origins of trauma, as Gabor Mate says, you know, and Johan Hari, who his brilliant book, Chasing the Scream, you know, talking about, you know, it's, it's, it's not the substance, it's your cage, you know, and the, the, the setting, that's the setting, but then it's also your mindset. What are your intentions? What's your knowledge? That's the other key piece that Andrew Weil was really trying to do with from chocolate to morphine, which my most recent addition is like from 1994 or something that maybe it's 2004 by now, but you know, he, there are a lot of people that have been talking about this for a long time, but we're finally in this sort of critical mass, sort of a paradigm shift is happening. It's really cool to be involved in this. And that's why we're hoping that the symposium really contributes to this process and, and sets a model, again, for this teaching kind of format where you're bringing students, faculty, and the public, experts from a, all, a whole range of professions, you know, everything from research scientists to business owners, to law enforcement, um, to harm reduction clinic volunteers, people who are really have a, a whole range of perspectives on these topics. And that's really what's been missing is, is, is public awareness. So, you know, what are we gonna what are we gonna replace the DARE program with? We this is this is an example of what that could look like. And treating even young people, even teenage, even teenagers, you know, um, as agentive human beings, as as individuals that could make good choices for themselves if they had access to reliable information, if they knew 
how to find reliable information and how to determine by the source and who are the funders and where are they published and all of that. What is, what is reliable information about these, about these really important topics to stay safe and again, and to use them maybe for remedies or therapies that until now we don't have reliable cures for depression or PTSD or anxiety or other trauma related illnesses. And these, you know, psychedelics, including cannabis are showing unbelievable potential in these fields of, of otherwise untreatable diseases, illnesses, that are really have only been managed by pharmaceuticals, which have a whole host of other side effects. You know, we all know that story. Um, so yeah, that's the wave we're on and it's pretty exciting. <laughs> you know, part of, part of being human is experiencing these, um, you know, this process of, of destruction and, and, building anew and suffering and learning from the suffering and making changes. This is a natural process and we're seeing it on a very, very grand scale. And I keep saying to people, um, my goodness, how lucky we are to be alive right now where, you know, we've, we've known it's been coming into our awareness for a long time that all of these systems that we're living in and operating under don't work for most people. Um, they may work for a few, but they don't work for the masses. Now we are being given an opportunity to really start to build anew and all of these systems are now falling apart and it's blatantly obvious to everyone that they're not working and that they're not working for me or you or um, the, our neighbors. So um, yes, it's very exciting to be able to take part in, um, you know, providing, starting to facilitate that shift in perspective. Um, because just like to your point, it doesn't only apply to these substances, it applies to a much much grander um, view of every detail of what we're, we're kind of facing right now. So um, yes, I love that. Chad, I'm gonna ask you the same question from your perspective. What do you see as the future of psychedelics? Um, I, I see the future of psychedelics as being um, not just medicalized. I think the medicalization of you know the sacred is awesome. And that's great. We need that for um, just for credibility. Um, but I, I think it would be a full cultural revolution. So that's including artists and creatives and including uh, obviously lawyers and that they're pretty much involved, but including every part of society, teachers in schools, mm -hmm. um, just everybody on boards, everybody being all in. Mm -hmm. um, so so uh, it, it, we can make it known that this is uh, a generational preference and that this is something that we are going to be leaving behind for people in the future to work off of. Um, and I, as a writer myself, I, I really do believe that like artists will be uh, key in, in bringing about and helping to bring about this social change. I think that's something that was, that they were really on point with in the, the 60s and 70s that we've maybe lost touch with a little bit 
Um, but I, I, I do see some hope that it's getting back there. Um, so I, in my opinion, yeah, like a full cultural revolution. Yes, I love that, Chad. That reminds me, we have a special event this year in our symposium that is a film screening of a new film called Symposia, which is P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A, directed by Pat Murphy, who our other event coordinator, Sarah Hagerman, who's a librarian at CU Boulder, um, she and I met Pat Murphy at the Drug Policy Alliance conference two years ago when he was putting together this film. And so we got specific funding to have a, a film screening and a Q&A with the director on Friday, Friday, April 16th at, at 6 to 7.30 p.m. Colorado time. And so this short film documentary that he made chronicles the use of psychedelics in therapy settings, all that research that was going on in the, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and then interviewing therapists today about the, the potentials they're seeing and restarting that. So it's a very timely film. It's really beautifully done, a lot of great archival footage. And I just wanna say that the, a key piece of this, the way that I think about this is, you know, just like in therapy, if you can, if you're suffering from anxiety or depression or something, and you can uncover the root of the trauma, that's causing this, that is begins you on your path towards healing because you understand where your anxiety comes from. It's the same thing with drug policy reform. As soon as we can understand the root causes of prohibition, where did it come from? Who was making these decisions? Who, was, who the hell was Harry Anslinger? who was the director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and was an advisor to seven presidents, seven presidents. You know, he received a, one of those awards from President Carter and lots of different people. So, you know, how do these kinds of paradigms become established and then they're, they become hegemonic? They're treated as just normal, natural, this is just the way the world works. And as soon as people start to realize that these policies emerged from periods of intense racism, uh, these, these, these strenuous efforts to maintain and impose white supremacy in every different policy that we have, you know, that the drug prohibition is linked to Jim Crow. I mean, the U United Nations single convention in 1961, that agreement was signed by governments around the country that were controlled by elites, European descended elites or local elites that were more interested in their ties to uh, so-called developing nations than they were to the indigenous people in their own countries. So any kind of political system that was established in 1961 needs to be dismantled <laughs> in, a, in you know, when it's founded upon those kinds of ethnocentric assumptions and punitive militarized methods of, of enforcement. And what's amazing is that we truly have an opportunity to 
to really just build a whole new like paradigm, a whole new way of thinking around this to where um, for our children and beyond it, you know, this way of thinking that we're promoting is can become the normal and you know we can start to have a more humane perspective on how we interact with each other and our relationship with substances um mm -hmm. yeah it's very beautiful i'm very excited about your event i think that it's going to be amazing i um can't thank you both enough for being here and coming and speaking with me is there any last things that you wanted to add in about your event um, well, the event's going to be held on April 17th over Zoom. And if you want to uh, go check out the registry, you can either find that on our on the link tree on our uh, Instagram at CanaPsychSimp2021, or you can just find the registry on our website, uh, CanaPsychSimp.com. Um, and the, the registry will be in both of those places. Um, so yeah, we, we would love for people to come out and we're really excited to be holding the event and thank you for having us on. Yeah, it's a really great opportunity to spread the word. As we said, this is the first time we've held the event remotely. So there are some positive outcomes from the Zoom, the Zoom paradigm, speaking of paradigms. And it's been our goal to reach a wider audience and we've tried live streaming and stuff like that. It's always been very complicated in the years past. So this year, we're really excited to reach other college campuses and the general public anywhere in the country. It's free. It's open to the public. We have a huge Zoom room reserved. So you can go to the website and register. And don't forget, we have a film screening Friday 6 to 7 30 p.m the documentary symposia and a q a with pat murphy we have our opening plenary at 10 a.m we have a panel in the morning on social and racial justice we have a the faculty keynote over the lunch period we have an afternoon panel on activism and users from different perspectives and then we have Alexandra Tunus talking about sound meditation, healing, and then Dennis McKenna is going to give a talk about his life spent researching psychedelic use in their traditional cultural settings and in modern therapeutic settings, including ayahuasca in the Amazon basin. And he's the brother of Terrence McKenna, who was one of the original psychonauts so, and, you know, considered to be representatives of the plants, of our plant teachers to try to bring the message to humans. And so we're really excited to have all of these speakers and participants. It's gonna be a beautiful event. And thank you both for all of um, your work in this space. It is um, critical that we all keep going and keep chugging along and spreading the word um, and educating the public and bringing, um, all of this information into their awareness. So thank you so much for everything. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed being a part of this conversation. I'd like to once again, thank Carol and Chad for joining me. Please register for their event at canapsychsimp.com. The link can be found in the description and find them on social media. Thank you so much for opening up your mind and listening. You can always find us on Instagram 
at Clinical Psychedelics Podcast, on Facebook at Alliance for the Cure, on Twitter at Alliance, the number four cure, and at allianceforthecure.org. We're looking forward to the future, and we hope you'll join us. Thank <laughs> you.